0: All right, we're in Revelation chapter 14. We're going to deal with verses 1 through 5 to get started. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him, and with Him 144,000, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, what I'm going to do is we're going to take some time just to break this section down and pull some things out of here. The first thing I want to deal with and have you kind of wrestle with, this Mount Zion that they're on, is this the earthly Mount Zion, or the, or the hill of Jerusalem, if you will, or is this a reference to heaven? What are your thoughts? On it. We, have, we, have, we have one, one guess of, of, of heaven. I hear another heaven. The rest of you are chicken. Heaven, heaven, heaven. And who said or any earth? We got one earth. Well, I'm going to tell you what I think it is and why. To be honest with you. You could it could be either way, but I think it's actually an earthly Jerusalem. And here's there's a couple of reasons why. Look closely what it's saying here. It Says before me there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from where? From heaven. So it appears that it's a separate place. All right? Plus, if you do a study, and we're not going to take the time to do all that, but if you take a look at Scripture, wherever Mount Zion is mentioned, all of them that I could find except one is clear. They're all earth, appear to be on earth, except there's one. I'm going to show you where there's one that is clearly talking about heaven. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Here is a place where it is referred to as heaven, but it clarifies that it's heaven. Let me show you what it says. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, and then to the church of the firstborn. It goes on, whose name is written in heaven. Here it actually says you've come to Mount Zion, but then clarifies the heavenly Jerusalem. I lean toward, like I said, it doesn't make that much difference, but I lean toward for other reasons as well, that this is actually John sees the Lamb on Mount Zion with those 144,000. I think, as you're about to see in this whole chapter, that this whole chapter 14 is a preview of what is going to be coming. We're going to be studying uh, in in, uh, chapters 15 and 16 and 17 and so on, in detail what is coming up next. But what you have in chapter 14, I believe, is actually an overview of the whole thing. And the best way I can describe that to you is to have you turn to Genesis chapter 1. Put a bookmark here and go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verses uh, 27 through chapter 2, verse 3. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Now God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Now at this point, we see the picture of creation. But when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, it says, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. Wait a minute! Didn't we just hear that it was created? Didn't we already have the account? What happens in the rest of chapter two here is a more detailed description of what we read in chapter one. As you see, then he goes to make the the, the man from the earth, and then later on you see the story of how man didn't have a helpmeet, and he had him look at the animals, and none was found, and then God put Adam to sleep, and took from his rip, took him, a rib from him and made woman. Chapter 2 goes into great detail of what you saw described in chapter 1. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? This is what I believe chapter 14 is. You go back to Revelation 14, and you'll see as we look at it tonight, I believe chapter 14 is a preview or an overview of what we're going to be looking at in detail down the road. So in chapter 14, John sees Jesus on the earth with his 144,000. Remember, they are the ones who were what? They were sealed by God, which means what? We already looked at this when we looked at chapter 7. They've been sealed by God and that means they can, can they be harmed? No. So are they going to die during this time period? No. No. So there's a really strong chance that these 144,000 are not only going to live without harm through the Uh, tribulation period, they will be on the earth during the millennium. Jesus, as you know, is going to come back, step foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two, we looked at all that before, and He's going to set up His kingdom and rule and reign. I think John here sees a picture of Jesus on Mount Zion, earthly Mount Zion, with His 144,000, and as you're about to see in the verses that are coming, he sees also some other things that are coming up as well. Alright, now we're going to ask a couple other questions about these people. Are they the same ones? And I think you already know the answer. Are they the same 144,000 that we saw in chapter 7? I believe they are without question. And remember, these are the first fruits. That means they had to be the first ones saved during this time period. So these are the same 144,000. Now, what I want to wrestle with, though, and this will be a very interesting part of our study because of our different translations. um, The question is now, it says, they didn't defile themselves with women. All alright. There are two options for what this means. One is that they're virgins. Now, some of your translations actually says they're virgins. Other translations says they kept themselves pure from women. Now, part of the reason why you have a discrepancy here is some of your translations were copied from a certain set of manuscripts. Some of the other translations were copied from another set of manuscripts. If you have a King James translation or or a new King James translation, they copied from what is known as Textus Receptus. Okay? Sorry, again. Yeah, Textus Receptus. That was the first set of manuscripts that they found, and they were considered to be the inspired, approved text. Afterwards... After Textus Receptus was found and they were in used, later on there was another set of manuscripts that they were that were found which actually were closer to the original copies of the original manuscripts. This group became Textus Majoris. Why? Because actually when they found those, there were more than, of those copies than there were Textus Receptus. Now I want you to stick with me here because it gets a little confusing. So the first group of manuscripts that they had are hand, hand copies of the original, original texts of scripture were called Textus Receptus. There's a group of those. King James was translated from that group. Later on, not long after that, they found another set of manuscripts that were almost the same, just slightly different in a few places. That group was called Textus Majoris because there were more copies of those than in the group that's called Textus Receptus. You still with me? Now, interestingly enough though, later on they found more copies that lined up with Textus Receptus. So actually, In the group called Textus Receptus, there are more copies now than there are in the Textus Majoris. Alright? Which makes it confusing. You would think the majority text would have more. They used to. Now there are more in the Receptus group. But, the majority group, or the Textus Majoris, is still considered a valuable group because they're closer to the original. So when people... If you were to try to decide which ones you think are more accurate, sometimes people would say... Let's go with the group that goes closer to the original because there's a chance as you go further along, things might have been changed or added or whatever and we don't need to get into all that mess. But with what you have now in front of you when you have discrepancies between translations is, like I'm using the NIV right now, the NIV they copied from Textus Majoris. That group didn't have the word virgin. Textus Receptus has the word virgin. So what I want to do though is show you scripturally that either could be okay. Because I believe that biblically it is still possible for someone to be remain pure in the eyes of God who's married. Go to Hebrews chapter 13 and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Somebody with a King James translation read verse 4. All right, it so said marriage is, is, is honored by, honorable by all, and the marriage bed is what? Undefiled. Do you see that? You can be sexually active in a marriage relationship and still be considered undefiled in the eyes of God. Uh, the NIV translates that verse uh, here in chapter 13, verse 4. It says marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. But I love how the King James translated there, and they said the marriage bed's undefiled. It is possible for you to remain sexually pure, be married to a woman or a man, have only a sexual relationship with that person, and be considered pure in the eyes of God. Okay? It's adultery and fornication and these types of things. Now the good thing about our God is, is if we haven't been pure in the eyes of God, He forgives us and our sins are separated as far as east as the west. But I want you to see that the Bible is not teaching here in Revelation chapter 14 that a relationship between a man and a woman is evil or impure. It can be very pure and very wonderful. And later on, if you want to do a further study on that, go into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul goes into great detail in dealing with that. And he talks about virgins and whether or not they should marry and all these types of things. And you'll see in that section that Paul was teaching that he actually taught that, he said, this is me speaking, not the Lord. If you're a virgin, don't get married because he believed the return of Christ was going to happen in his lifetime. If the time is short. You need to put your full energies into serving the Lord. Well, you know and I know that if everybody had followed his, his instructions you and I wouldn't be here today in the time that, that the Lord has. And the Bible is very clear that marriage is something that God designed. So I want you to understand, most likely these are virgins, though. These are men who have not had relationship with the women, but don't fall into thinking that a relationship with the woman makes you impure. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Yes, ma'am. I see that hand. If, if 144,000, they're, they're, ju- they're ruling mm-hmm. the There's the possibility they may be. Because if they were virgin, the likelihood that their wives survived the tribulation as well? Well, if they're virgin, then they probably wouldn't be married. I know what I'm saying. If they mm-hmm. had been married prior to the tribulation or while, you know, while the tribulation was going on and their wives died during the tribulation. My guess would be, and this is where I'm coming. This is, she's heading into a very interesting topic, and we're going to get into it in more detail later on, but I will touch on it tonight. There's a possibility that if this means that they weren't virgins, but they were married and sexually pure with their husband and wife, that this might be most likely a believing wife as well. Because remember, these are the first fruits, and they're like this. Chances are their wives are going to be believers as well. There's a chance that God may be using this group to populate there if they're in the millennium. And could not a woman be counted as one of those? No, because it says here that they hadn't defiled themselves with women. Now, we could try To get into that whole lesbian issue, but I don't believe that it's. It, it appears that these were men. It appears that these were men. Well, it appears that the individuals were sealed, but it doesn't mean that, that we don't know if the wife, again, we don't know if they're married or not married. All I want you to understand is this it's possible to be married and sexually pure in the eyes of God. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want people to come out here thinking, well, you know, you know, Becky defiled me or anything like that. You know. So <laughs> You think it's the other way around? huh? Go ahead. A if, if Jesus is on Mount Zion, is this before or after he descends on, on the This is a foreshadowing of after he comes back. Again, this is a picture of what's coming. This is, this is after he descends. This is after he comes back. Yes. Yes, this is after, like I said, if this, this is a literal Jerusalem. This is after he's come back. And as you're going to see, you're about to see things that are described that haven't happened yet in the timeline of Revelation. Alright? So, that's just where I want you to go. I just In case there, there are people over the years who have gotten curious about, well, is it wrong to be married then if they're considered pure in the eyes of God if they're virgins? There's nothing wrong with being married, okay? Uh, But at the same time, you can see how important sexual purity is in the eyes of God. It really is an important thing. Alright? Let's move on now to chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises for ever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Now again, here we see a picture of what's going to be described in much more detail down the road. For example, look at verse 8. A second angel follows and says, What? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, some of your translations say, Great city. Again, differing on which text of, uh, of te- manuscripts you use, but here it says, The city Babylon is fallen. Now, put a bookmark there and go to chapter 18. What does your heading say over chapter 18? The fall of Babylon, alright? So, what what I want you to see here is what you're reading in chapter 14 is like Genesis chapter 1. It's an overview of what's coming. Chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18 are going to go into more detail describing what it is we're reading here. So, if you see chapter 14 as you would read chapter 1 of Genesis, it helps you make a lot more sense. When you try to put it in order, that's where it's going to mess you up. It's an overview of what's about to come. But I want to deal with verse 6. And I want us to take some time to look at this because there's something here that I believe, myself included, that the church has missed in the awesomeness of who God is when it comes to. Something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. So I'm going to read to you verse 6, and then we're going to jump to Matthew 24. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. Alright, put a bookmark here, and go back to Matthew 24. We're going to look at verses 4 through 14. Jesus is talking about the end of the world and the sign of His coming and all these things. And He answered, watch out, verse 4 of chapter 24, that no one deceives you, for many will come in My name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in all various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I think that Matthew 24 will not be fulfilled when it talks about here, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't believe that will be filled until what we read here in chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 6. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I believe we have a mandate from the Lord to spread the gospel and the good news of salvation to all the world, to the ends of the earth. But I think that for years, man has been trying to come up with, if we can just get the gospel to the whole world, then Jesus will come back. And I think two things from this passage in Revelation chapter 14. One, it's not going to be fully accomplished by us, but God Himself is going to do it. And the awesome thing is this. He's going to get it done. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to take a little detour and I want us to do a really in-depth study of the fact that we have been given a command by God to be witnesses to the whole world, yet at the same time, He doesn't need any of us. And it, if you can grasp what we're going to get into detailed depth-wise tonight, it will help you in your relationship with the Lord. It will free you up. It will make evangelism fun. And so what I want to do real quick is I want to show that God desires to use us. Alright? So uh, we don't have to turn there. Some of, if you want to, you can. Someone here probably could quote to us Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Alright? Now, verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the the seasons that God has set by His own authority. They had just asked Him, are you at this time going to restore Jerusalem, the the kingdom, you know, restore the kingdom? Because He was standing on the Mount of Olives there in Acts chapter 1. And they knew the prophecy in Zechariah that He was going to come stand on the Mount of Olives. It was going to split in two, and He was going to start the kingdom. And so all excited, He had died. He had been laid in the tomb for three days. He had risen from the dead by His own power. He had been alive for 40 days and walking through walls. And still able to eat stuff with them, yet at the same time he'd disappear and show up somewhere else. And now he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples are pretty excited. They think the prophecy is about to be fulfilled. And they said, Are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, It's not for you to know the times that God has set by his own authority. But what does he say next in verse 8? Alright, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Remember, He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They had a command and a commission... By God, back in Revelation chapter ten, remember John was given the scroll. The angel, the mighty angel, had the little scroll, and he told God told him to go eat it. And he ate it; it tasted sweet in his mouth, but it turned his stomach sour. And then he says, "You're going to prophesy about many people, nations, and languages." Ezekiel in chapter two was told to eat a scroll, and then he was told to say what was written on it. He was to adjust the word of God, but he was to share it. We have been given a command by God to feed on His word, and we need it for ourselves. But I don't know if many Christians really understand. That we're not only to eat for ourselves. It's kind of like when ladies are pregnant. What do they always say? You're eating for what? You're eating for two. Well, we're eating for more than two. We're eating not only for ourselves, but we've been given a command by God to share what it is that He's given us. Now, at the same time... I think the church has sat back and expected the preachers or the teachers are the ones who are supposed to be eating it and sharing it. The rest of us are just supposed to eat. That's not what the Bible teaches, folks. And you didn't understand that God is expecting you to share what it is that you have received. Freely have you received, freely you must give. To Him who has been given much, must, much is required. There is a command of God that we are to share the message that we have been, we have been given. Here's the problem. The church, unfortunately, and I grew up in this era as well, I've heard many preachers over the years say this, If you don't tell them, what? They may never hear. Ever heard that one? I want to show you scripturally that is not true. That is not true. Now, yes, we've been commanded in Acts one eight to be His witnesses. We know in Matthew 28, Jesus said... All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. He told us to go and share the message. But when we start thinking, if we don't tell them, they might not hear, we totally miss out on who God actually is. In Revelation 14 here, verse 6 shows us that actually it's God that's going to get this message of salvation to the whole whole world and to the whole earth. And so, what I want us to do now is I want to show you some passages that deal with the fact that God's able to get His stuff done. Uh, everybody, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Now, here Paul is in uh, in uh, he's in Athens, and uh, he's speaking to a group of men called the Areopagus. He's on Mars Hill. And he's noticed that they had this altar, they had altars to all these gods, and they even had one to the unknown God in case they missed one. And Paul decides, here's my chance to tell them who God is, and he uses that unknown God altar, and he says, the one you call unknown, let me tell you who he is. And then in verse 24 he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now, some of your translations say worshipped, not served. But I want you to understand that scripturally in the Bible, the words serve and worship are actually interchangeable. For example, if I were to ask you to quote to me Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you'd say something like this, I beg you therefore, brethren, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, right? Which is your What? What? spiritual act of worship or some of your translations say reasonable service they're interchanged if you were to quote to me Psalm 100 verse 2 some of your translations would say serve the Lord with gladness others would say worship the Lord with gladness and you would say well that's just one translation that uses worship all the time and the other one uses service actually no When one translation uses serve in Psalm 100 verse 2, that same translation uses worship in Acts 17.25. The translation that says worship in Psalm 100 verse 2 says serve in Acts 17.25. Because actually I've done a study of it. The words service and worship in the Hebrew and the Greek are interchangeable. To serve God is to worship God. To worship God is to serve God. They're the same thing. And here in this place we see the same thing. But look at what Paul says. God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Folks, if you think God needs you to get it done, God is needy and no longer God. He's able to accomplish His what He wants to get done. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. Look at verses 37 through 40. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, and it says, When He came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What's Jesus saying? I'm going to get my praise. You can shut them up all you want, I'm still going to get my praise. Creation declares His glory. glory. Let's look at another place. Go to Isaiah 55. God said His Word is going to accomplish everything He desires for it to accomplish. Folks, what I want you to understand is, when we really understand the bigness of God, the awesomeness of God, it becomes even more fun to be working alongside of Him because the pressure's not on us. Now, I am not saying you sit back and don't tell anybody because God's going to get it done. You know what? I will tell you this much. Even if that's your attitude, God's still going to get His stuff done, but you're going to miss out. You are going to miss out. Ezekiel 33 talks about how, you know, God will hold us accountable for whether or not we've done what it is He's asked us to do as men, watchmen on the watchtower. It doesn't mean that if I don't tell them, they won't hear. The scripture doesn't say that. It just simply says that we're going to be held accountable. That's why in Acts chapter 20, Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I haven't, I've have been faithful to preach the whole gospel to you. Paul, when he said that, had he ever shed anybody's blood? Yes, He had. He sure had shed people's blood. But He wasn't talking about that. He was referring back to Ezekiel 33 where it says, I'm going to hold you accountable for so-and-so's blood if you don't tell them. Yet at the same time, the Bible never says that if you don't tell them, they won't hear. We're going to, we, we've been given a responsibility. We've been given a mandate by God to share what it is we've received. Don't have it turned into if you don't tell them they won't hear, because that will cause you to start trying to accomplish things in your own power. Understand that they're going to hear, but at the same time, I want them to use me. I want him to use me. And his word will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Another passage, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, is Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Here Mordecai is supposed to speak to the king on behalf of the Jews because Haman wants him killed. And, and Mordecai, sorry, not Mordecai, uh, Esther speaking to the king. And Mordecai says to Esther, he says, if you don't speak to the king on behalf of the Jews, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from somewhere else. In other words, don't think that if you don't do it, it won't get done. God's going to take care of Israel. But you and your family will suffer. But who knows? Maybe you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. Maybe this is an opportunity that God has given you. There's wonderful theology in that. Mordecai says to Esther, look, this is an opportunity God probably has given you. Oh, if you don't do it, He's still going to take care of us, but you're going to miss out. That's what this picture is. For too long, though, we preachers have said, you don't tell them. If you don't tell them, they might not hear. We've been guilted into this, might be your last chance, and you got to tell them. No, we've got a bigger God than that. And He has not left the fate of mankind in our hands. Thank God He hasn't left the fate of mankind in our hands. Go ahead. So, is there a person who would accept that I forgot to tell them would be I'm sorry. Is there a person that, if you, if you had forgotten to tell them, would be? If I hadn't forgotten or hadn't chosen No. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, you may miss out on some... Trust me, me too. I mean, I've been times that I know God's been telling me to tell somebody. And I know in my past life, I was chicken. I was afraid. You know, there have been times you've had that opportunity, me too. Or, you know, we're sitting on an airplane. Maybe I was supposed to share the gospel. You know what? There's a wonderful thing is, God is going to get His message to everyone accomplished. We're going to miss out on some reward. And, and, and thank God, like I said, He has not left the fate of humankind in our hands. Alright? Let me, let me tell you one more place. Uh, Romans chapter 10. Go there. This has been one of the most, most used passages to put guilt on people that if you don't tell them, they won't hear. Look at Romans chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 8. I want you to see this. It says, well, what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we're proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now before you read any further, I've heard preachers stop right there and say, Well, how can they hear if you don't tell them? But they didn't keep reading. But verse 16 says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, "The Lord, says, Lord who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask... Did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I asked, did Israel not understand? And then he goes on. And Paul asks the question, did these people not hear? Yes, they did. His word will not return void. Romans chapter 1 says everybody hears through creation, as Allison has pointed out. Everyone's without excuse. God has revealed that He exists through His creation and His invisible qualities. His divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. In chapter 2, though, Paul goes on to say, if they've not heard the law of God that the Jews have heard, God has written His law in all of our hearts. Every one of us were born with a sense of right and wrong. Now, what uh, Grandma Cuckoo might consider right and wrong might not be what I consider right and wrong, but we've all... We've got a sense of right and wrong. We're all born with it, given to us by God. Now, honestly, have you ever gone against what you considered right and wrong? Yeah, we all have. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, God's revealed to those who even, even get in the written law, He's revealed to them in their hearts that they're lawbreakers. And then he goes on to say, listen to what he says, God will then judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Is everybody going to hear? Yes, everyone's going to hear. God not want, willing for anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, how can I mean that no one can come to him unless the spirit of God draws them first? And then in verse 45, it says, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me, Jesus says. Now, those of you that have been parents or are parents now, you understand there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? Everybody hears. Does everybody listen? No. Yeah. Our responsibility is to be faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. Share this message of salvation, but do it with a sigh of relief. If you don't do it, He's still going to get His message to them. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. Cindy Haney could sit back and say, well, the message is going to get to Haiti. I don't have to go. No, God's called her to go to Haiti. But if she decides not to, guess what? People in Haiti are still going to hear. But Cindy's going to miss out on reward. You're going to miss out if you're not willing to do what it is God's called you to do. And so I just want you to understand that we've been called by God to share, but Romans 14 verse 6 is a wonderful thing. The gospel being preached to the whole world and then the end will come that was written in Matthew 24 is going to happen during this time period of the tribulation. Probably not going to be accomplished by man. God's going to do it. God's going to get His message to the whole world. You got a question or are you just raising your arm here? They were definitely. And he run a little further. He said that they're going to be replaced mm-hmm. by a nation that doesn't know. It. And he, he's done that right along. The Christian, the church is supposed to come and carry the news. Then 144,000. Right. And then, then God Himself. He's getting His message. You're right. The Jews were to be a light. They said no thanks. The church's been called to be a light. We haven't done the best job. The 144,000 come in as good a job as they do, because they're pure. There's no fault in them. Yet, God still comes with the angel who presents the gospel to the whole world. Man, I love our big God. It has made life so much easier when I really understood who God really is. I I unfortunately grew up under a lot of preaching that was man-centered. I'm sorry? Yep, that's true. Back when I told you how Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll and then share what was on it, he was told over and over in that section of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, he says whether they listen or fail to listen, you say it. Whether they listen or fail to listen, you say it. We're not responsible for whether they say yes or no. I know full well For after when I was first preaching as a young man, I used to come home on Sundays and think when people didn't walk the aisle, there was something I did wrong. Maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have told this story. or maybe I, And God finally got a hold of me and said, Jim, it has nothing to do with you. You've heard me share this before. Did Jonah want the Ninevites to listen? Do you think he gave his best message? <laughs> he probably walked into there and said, In 40 days you'll perish. I don't really know what. You know, it, he didn't want them to hear. He then said what God told him to say and went up on the hill to watch God destroy them, and they all fell on their faces. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with us. It's God who does it. But. Don't sit back and say, well, I'm not going to tell anybody then because God's going to get His stuff done. You're going to be held accountable for whether or not you've been faithful to share what it is you've been given. Alright? Does that make sense? You with me now? Alright. That'll keep you from getting sermon number two. So we'll stop there and we'll go over to verse eight. Here we see the foreshadowing of the falling of the city of Babylon. I think, and I'm leaning more and more this way, I don't know for a fact yet because to be honest with you, none of us fully know, if you say, oh, I know what this is all the time, you don't understand prophecy. But I'm starting to lean toward this might be an actual rebuilding of the city of Babylon. Um, For years I've leaned toward it being Rome, but I'm not sure now. There's even a chance that actually the headquarters of the the, uh, end of Christ's empire moves from Rome to Babylon, or the plain of Shinar. There's a very interesting section there, I think it's in Zechariah chapter 4, where these two women-looking angels have a woman in a basket, and she represents sin. And they pick her up from where she is and they take her and move her to a plane in Shinar. There are some theologians or Bible prophecy scholars that think that the headquarters of the Roman Empire, or sorry, of the Antichrist kingdom, the rebuilt Roman Empire, might start in Rome, but be moved to Babylon at some point. They're rebuilding it as we speak, rapidly. Rapidly. Yeah? so again i 'm leaning toward more and more that I think that this city of Babylon is the city of Babylon, but yeah it 's actually in Iraq, yes, and actually if you 'll stick around don 't miss or if you do you 've got to get the, the listen on the website. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go into great detail and I'm going to show you, tracing all the way back to Genesis, how all false religion came out of Babylon and the Tower of Babel and all that. It's a very, very interesting study that goes into some places in Jeremiah that shows that they were worshiping this man called Tammuz in the temple in Jerusalem during their wicked days and all this kind of stuff, how false religions all started right there in the city of Babylon when we get to Genesis 11. It's a neat study. We'll get to that in time, so make sure you're able to... or at least follow along, because I'm going to go into that in more detail. But for now, we just see a fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Again, this doesn't happen until the very end of the tribulation period, so again, it's a foreshadowing of what's coming. Alright, and the last thing I want you to see from this section that we're looking at here is, uh, the Lord says, Blessed are those who will die in the Lord at that coming time, for it is about to get really, really bad. What he simply says here is, and at verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven say, Blessed are those the dead who die in the Lord from now on. What does that simply mean? You'd be be better off dead. Uh, It's really going to be bad uh, during that time period. And uh, you'll see. Now, we're going to wrap up in the time we have left here with verses 14 for the end of the chapter here. Says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, and with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had the charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath they were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia or it's about 180 miles is what that distance is okay now what I want to deal with right off here is who is this person on a cloud? I believe it's Jesus. I really believe it's Jesus who's sitting on the cloud with, with the gold crown. And for, there are some that say, well, it can't be because it says it looks like a son of man. Well, that's exactly what they described, how they describe Jesus in Revelation 1. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 and, and, and take a look at verses 12 and 13. Remember, John's on the Isle of Patmos, he hears this voice behind him. He turned around, verse 12 of chapter 1, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now there's no question in chapter 1, that's Jesus. I think this is Jesus. Don't let, like a son of man, throw you off. He's described that way many a time. Alright? So, um, I think it's just simply saying, because Jesus in His glorified form still looks like a human. You know, he's still He's still got His humanity. Alright? Now, this cloud. We're going to deal with the harvesting and the sickle in a little bit. But I want to deal with this cloud. I just recently, actually today, as I was doing some more study, I read this man who said that he thinks this cloud... Is the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. You remember, all the way, whenever God appeared to man, there was this glory that showed. The glory of the Lord was around them, and these types of things. And I'm going to list some things to you and give you some scriptures to look up later on if you want to. But uh, go with me, real quick, to Matthew 17, verse 5. This is where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. He's transfigured, and His glory shines through. And look at what verse 5 says. I remember Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and they were talking with him. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now, for years, I've kind of always pictured that just kind of be like a fog set in, or, you know, a cloud up on the mountain came down. But it was a bright cloud, it says. And actually, as I did a little more study from this one man's comment... I came to realize that pretty much every time that God appeared to manifest Himself, there was this Shekinah glory, it's called. The, the glory of God. It's kind of hard to describe because it's a brightness. It's, it's a beauty, but it's kind of like a cloud, but it's not a cloud. And You know how we use the term when an atomic bomb goes off? What do they say is seen? It's a mushroom cloud. Now, is it a mushroom? No. Is it a cloud? No, it's not even a cloud. But it's a mushroom cloud, we call it that, because it kind of looks like a cloud. This is what this Word is actually picturing here. It's not a cloud. It's kind of like a cloud. And I think Jesus doesn't need to sit on a cloud, does He? I think this is His glory. And so I'm just going to list to you some of the many places that I've seen the glory of God revealed. Look, look all right, back when God um, had them build the tabernacle. What was over the tabernacle and they followed it when it moved? The cloud by day, and it looked like fire by night. If you look at the Scripture, it says it was a cloud by day, but it looked like fire at night. There's something different about this cloud. It's it's the glory of God. When the manna was given, you go back and you can write this down and look at it yourself. Exodus 16, verse 10. When manna was given to God, a glory cloud of God appeared first. And then the manna appeared. Uh, There was also a cloud with the giving of the law. Actually, both times. Remember, he gave Moses the law, and then Moses destroyed him because of the people's wickedness, and then God made the next set of tablets. Each time, the glory of the Lord appeared in a a cloud. Uh, At the finishing of the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord in the form of a cloud came and enveloped the tabernacle. And at the end of the choosing of the 70 elders, back back when Moses uh, needed to have some help because he was leading all the people by himself, and his father-in-law Jethro comes and says, this isn't a good thing, man, you're about to kill yourself. And they chose 70 elders to come help him out. And at the end of the choosing of the 70 elders, the glory of the Lord appeared again in a cloud. Uh, we also have uh, um, and by the way that 's numbers chapter eleven verse twenty five if you want to go look that up at the finishing of the temple. Remember when Solomon built the temple what happened god 's glory came into the temple and in the form of a cloud and rested above the cherubim over the ark of the covenant. Sad thing is in the book of Ezekiel, that same glory, the Lord left, went out through the front doors of the temple and outside the city, and disappeared and Actually, the only time you even see Ezekiel ever anymore talking about the glory of the Lord is talking about the future millennial kingdom. When he comes back at the birth of Jesus, the announcement of the shepherds, what happened? what appeared? the glory of the Lord shone around them. I believe it's this cloud, this hard frustrated picture, or to describe glory of God when he comes again he 's coming with the clouds, could be his glory clouds coming with him is this wonderful picture of that, and I think this is Jesus sitting amongst his glory, and all John could say was he 's sitting on a cloud. <laughs> In the clouds of heaven, and that's different. It's a different kind of cloud. It might not be a cloudy day when he comes back. We don't know, you know, kind of a thing. And then this is a, this is a fresh thing for me, but I, I'm pretty excited about it because I think there's something to this. I think this man has actually seen something there. And there is a Bible scholar who's a Greek scholar who thinks that when angel Gabriel tells Mary that the power of God shall come over you, it's this picture of the glory of the Lord shall overshadow you. It says that maybe she was enveloped in this glory of God cloud, and Jesus was put inside of her. It's interesting, very interesting. Now the two swinging of the sickles. Well, the first swinging of the sickle, Jesus is swinging that sickle, and and what it is, it's the end of the tribulation. And the first and, and it's it's judgment. Go real quickly to Matthew 13. Verses 36 through 43. Jesus told the parable of the weeds, and the parable of the weeds is, uh, He talks about how someone has sowed bad seed in the field and they said, wait a minute, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And he said, wait until the time of the end. It's said, verse 36, Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is at the end of the tribulation period where God will gather, and His angels are going to do it for Him, but we see the picture of Jesus Himself swinging the the sickle here. It's the harvest at the end. Now, at this point, all of the righteous that have made it through the tribulation are going to stay on the earth. They're going to populate the earth during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Those who are the wicked and unrighteous, they're going to be harvested. They're going to be taken out first. You'll see that there in the parable of the weeds. It says He's going to gather the wicked first, and they're going to be taken, and then He's going to take care of the righteous. I believe the 144,000 will stay on the earth during that time period to populate the earth during the millennial reign. Jesus comes back to set up His kingdom. We come with Him. We rule and reign with Him. And uh, that's what it's going to be. But this sickle here, this is the very, very end of the tribulation period. Again, have we gotten to the end of the tribulation period? Not yet. Not in our study of Revelation. This is like Genesis chapter 1. It's an overview of what we're going to look at in detail coming. And that will make things so much more clear. Now, the second sickle is the, the, the angels grab this sickle and they start gathering the clusters of grapes. They're thrown in the wine press of God. If you know anything about wine presses, they would gather all the grapes, they put them in these big vats, and what did people do? And they bared their feet and stomped on them and what came out? The, the wine comes out the side there. It turns into wine in time. Uh, well, this is the picture God gives of how much blood is going to be shed during this final battle at the end of the, the, the tribulation period. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. We keep hearing all these things about Armageddon. We're going to go into a lot of detail about that in the coming week or two when we get looking at the Battle of Armageddon and the Valley of Megiddo and where it comes from and where it is and all that stuff. But keep in mind... The distance of 1,600 stadia, or 180 miles, because so I'll give you a little bit of hint. Anybody want to guess how long the Valley of Armageddon is? It's 180 miles from one end to the other. And look at what it says here. They trampled, verse 20, in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles, For a distance of 1,600 stadia. How high is a horse's bridle? Those of you that are horse people, any idea? It's about four, four to five feet, isn't it? Four to five feet, depending on the size of your horse. Blood is going to flow in that valley, four to five feet deep, for 180 miles. Oh, and by the way, the width is pretty amazing too. We'll get to that in time, but Napoleon himself stood on that, in that valley when he was trying to conquer the world, and he said, this is the greatest battlefield in the history of the planet. Little did he know that the final battle was going to be fought right there. The Bible had always said it would be. And we'll get to that in time. What do we have here? We have a picture of the very end of the tribulation. God's going to gather all the wicked, the unrighteous off the earth, and bring them for judgment. And how he's going to do it is the battle of Armageddon. And we're going to get to that in time when he gathers all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. They gather in that valley. And then Jesus comes back and wipes them out. And their blood flows that deep and that high. It's not always the greatest place to stop. But at the same time, we don't have time to go any further. So we're going to stop. (laughs) Any thoughts that you've had from tonight? What is something God said to you tonight? Anybody want to share anything before we wrap up? We're going to avenge our blood. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, the other angel with a sharp sickle is he going to help Jesus. The second angel yeah, The second angel comes out. He's the one that's gathering the grapes. Jesus No, from this passage here, Jesus is the one who swings his sickle and the earth is harvested. Of course, as we saw from Matthew 13, it's actually God's using the angels to gather all of them. He just swings a sickle and the earth is harvested. But the actual work of harvesting, the Bible says from Matthew 13, the angels are going to be the ones who gather them. And then when the sickle of the heart, heart, uh, sorry, the sickle gathering the grapes, that's just a picture of. Of what's going to happen. It's a word picture of the blood that's about to be shed, but that's all that is. Jesus himself is going to be the one who actually does the killing, if you will, during that time period. But again, we just see a picture of what is about to happen. That's how his robe gets stained with blood. That's right. Stopping the, uh, the wine press. Yeah. Uh, is there a place where it says his robe stained with blood in that way? Not here, but it, yeah. when he comes back. Oh, when he comes back, right. When he comes back. He's we're all going to be dressed in white. Go ahead. In this circle then verse 16. Well, the only problem with that is, if that's the way it is, there's no one left on the earth to live in the millennium. It's Matthew uh, 40, Right. Talks about the one left and one one, being out and one being left. Those that are, left are the ones that will be going into the millennium. Right. The ones that are left, he's going to leave the righteous that make it on the earth during the millennial reign. If he just gathers the righteous and then destroys the ones that are left. So you're saying he's just separating them from the ones that are going to be destroyed. It it could be that, but I, like I say, I I don't see it that way. But it could be that way. To be honest with you. That's the neat thing about prophecy is is we can't say this is how it'll be. I, I lean toward that. What he's talking about here is this is as he said in Matthew 13. At the time of the end, the angels are going to gather those who are the the wheat. I mean, sorry, the weeds. But that? actually, that differs that because the angels, not Christ, are what are acting in mm-hmm. verse 17 right 16 right but at the same time he 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 could just swing a sickle and then they do the actual work you know sorry go ahead That's a possibility too. I don't know. Nicole's speculation is, is that uh, in some vineyards, the owner of the vineyard goes and gets the first ceremonial one and then the others go get the rest. Again, don't know. All we know is that John has been given this picture of Jesus on the cloud swinging his sickle and it's a harvest. Then we see the other angels come and they gather grapes and Stomp them, and then the the blood flows from the wine press. If we try to make them literal, this these grapes are the wicked. It, we we don't know. Yeah, I agreed. Yet at the same time, you know, from the Matthew passage though, in 13, they, they told to go gather all the wheat, weeds first. In Matthew 13 he was told to go gather in the weeds and the wheat parrots. yeah go gather the weeds and burn them and then gather the wheat into the barn. So again we don't know Well the good news is he's got it all figured out. We don't we don't have to. That's that's true. Anybody else? Let me pray for us then. Father again, thank you for this chance to come and Uh, and open Your Word. And Lord, we look forward to seeing some more detail. We already see that we've we've gotten an overview of what's coming, but we look forward to You showing us some more detail of the specifics of these. And maybe some of these questions we have will be answered as we go through that. But Lord, again, thank You for people's willingness to come on this cold night and hunger for Your Word. Thank You that You're going to get Your stuff done, but we still won't be a part of it. May we be faithful to do what it is put in front of us. We ask this in Your name. Amen.